Section 51 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 51, Chapter 60, Part 4. Fairfax having resigned his commission, it was bestowed on Cromwell, who was declared Captain General of all the forces in England. This command, in a commonwealth which stood entirely by arms, was of the utmost importance, and was the chief step which this ambitious politician had yet made towards sovereign power. He immediately marched his forces and entered Scotland with an army of 16,000 men. The command of the Scottish army was given to Leslie, an experienced officer who formed a very proper plan of defence. He entrenched himself in a fortified camp between Edinburgh and Leith, and took care to remove from the counties of Merce and the Lothians everything which could serve to the subsistence of the English army. Cromwell advanced to the Scotch camp, and endeavoured by every expedient to bring Leslie to a battle. The prudent Scotchman knew that, though superior in numbers, his army was much inferior in discipline to the English, and he carefully kept himself within his entrenchments. By skirmishes and small encounters, he tried to confirm the spirits of his soldiers, and he was successful in these enterprises. His army daily increased both in numbers and courage. The king came to the camp, and having exerted himself in an action, gained on the affections of the soldiery, who were more desirous of serving under a young prince of spirit and vivacity than under a committee of talking gown men. The clergy were alarmed. They ordered Charles immediately to leave the camp. They also purged it carefully of about 4,000 malignants and engagers, whose zeal had led them to attend the king, and who were the soldiers of chief credit and experience in the nation. They then concluded that they had an army composed entirely of saints, and could not be beaten. They murmured extremely, not only against their prudent general, but also against the Lord, on account of his delays in giving them deliverance. And they plainly told him, that if he would not save them from the English sectaries, he should no longer be their God. An advantage having offered itself on a Sunday, they hindered the general from making use of it, lest he should involve the nation in the guilt of Sabbath-breaking. Cromwell found himself in a very bad situation. He had no provisions but what he received by sea. He had not had the precaution to bring these in sufficient quantities, and his army was reduced to difficulties. He retired to Dunbar. Leslie followed him and encamped on the heights of Lammermuir, which overlook that town. There lay many difficult passes between Dunbar and Berwick, and of these Leslie had taken possession. The English general was reduced to extremities. He had even embraced a resolution of sending by sea all his foot and artillery to England, and of breaking through, at all hazards, with his cavalry. The madness of the Scottish ecclesiastics saved him from this loss and dishonour. Night and day the ministers had been wrestling with the Lord in prayer, as they termed it, and they fancied that they had at last obtained the victory. Revelations, they said, were made them that the sectarian and heretical army together with Agag, meaning Cromwell, was delivered into their hands. Upon the faith of these visions, they forced their general, in spite of his remonstrances, to descend into the plain with a view of attacking the English in their retreat. 
Cromwell, looking through a glass, saw the enemy's camp in motion, and foretold, without the help of revelations, that the Lord had delivered them into his hands. He gave orders immediately for an attack. In this battle, it was easily observed that nothing in military actions can supply the place of discipline and experience, and that in the presence of real danger where men are not accustomed to it, the fumes of enthusiasm presently dissipate and lose their influence. The Scots, though double in number to the English, were soon put to flight and pursued with great slaughter. The chief, if not only resistance, was made by one regiment of Highlanders, that part of the army which was least infected with fanaticism. No victory could be more complete than this which was obtained by Cromwell. About three thousand of the enemy were slain, and nine thousand taken prisoners. Cromwell pursued his advantage and took possession of Edinburgh and Leith. The remnant of the Scottish army fled to Stirling. The approach of the winter season, and an ague which seized Cromwell, kept him from pushing that victory any further. The clergy made great lamentations, and told the Lord that to them it was little to sacrifice their lives and estates, but to him it was a great loss to suffer his elect to be destroyed. They published a declaration containing the cause of their late misfortunes. These visitations they ascribed to the manifold provocations of the king's house, of which, they feared, he had not yet thoroughly repented. The secret intrusion of malignants into the king's family, and even into the camp, the leaving of a most malignant and profane guard of horse, who, being sent for to be purged, came two days before the defeat, and were allowed to fight with the army. The owning of the king's quarrel, by many without subordination to religion and liberty, and the carnal self-seeking of some, together with the neglect of family prayers by others. Cromwell, having been so successful in the War of the Sword, took up the pen against the Scottish ecclesiastics. He wrote them some polemical letters in which he maintained the chief points of the independent theology. He took care, likewise, to retort on them their favourite argument of providence, and asked them whether the Lord had not declared against them. But the ministers thought that the same events, which to their enemies were judgments, to them were trials, and they replied that the Lord had only hid his face for a time from Jacob. But Cromwell insisted that the appeal had been made to God in the most express and solemn manner, and that, in the fields of Dunbar, an irrevocable decision had been awarded in favour of the English army. The defeat of the Scots was regarded by the king as a fortunate event. The armies which fought on both sides were almost equally his enemies, and the vanquished were now obliged to give him some more authority, and apply to him for support. The Parliament was summoned to meet at St Johnston's. Hamilton, Lauderdale, and all the engagers were admitted into court and camp, on condition of doing public penance, and expressing repentance for their late transgressions. Some malignants also crept in under various pretenses. The intended humiliation or penance of the king was changed into the ceremony of his coronation, which was performed at Scone with great pomp and solemnity. But amidst all this appearance of respect, Charles remained in the hands of the most rigid covenanters, and though treated with civility and courtesy by Argyle, a man of parts and address, he was little better than a prisoner, and was still exposed to all the rudeness and pedantry of the ecclesiastics. This young prince was in a situation which very ill suited his temper and disposition. All those good qualities which he possessed, his affability, his wit, his gaiety, his gentleman-like disengaged behaviour, were here so many vices, 
and his love of ease, liberty, and pleasure was regarded as the highest enormity. Though artful in the practice of courtly dissimulation, the sanctified style was utterly unknown to him, and he never could mould his deportment into that starched grimace which the Covenanters required as an infallible mark of conversion. The Duke of Buckingham was the only English courtier allowed to attend him, and by his ingenious talent for ridicule, he had rendered himself extremely agreeable to his master. While so many objects of derision surrounded them, it was difficult to be altogether insensible to the temptation, and wholly to suppress the laugh. Obliged to attend from morning to night at prayers and sermons, they betrayed evident symptoms of weariness or contempt. The clergy could never esteem the king sufficiently regenerated, and by continual exhortations, remonstrances, and reprimands, they still endeavoured to bring him to a juster sense of his spiritual duty. The king's passion for the fair could not altogether be restrained. He had once been observed using some familiarities with a young woman, and a committee of ministers was appointed to reprove him for a behaviour so unbecoming to a covenanted monarch. The spokesman of the committee, one Douglas, began with a severe aspect, informed the king that great scandal had been given to the godly, enlarged on the heinous nature of sin, and concluded with exhorting his majesty, whenever he was disposed to amuse himself, to be more careful for the future in shutting the windows. This delicacy, so unusual to the place and to the character of the man, was remarked by the king, and he never forgot the obligation. The king, shocked at all the indignities, and perhaps still more tired with all the formalities to which he was obliged to submit, made an attempt to regain his liberty. General Middleton, at the head of some royalists, being prescribed by the Covenanters, kept in the mountains, expecting some opportunity of serving his master. The king resolved to join this body. He secretly made his escape from Argyle, and fled towards the highlands. Colonel Montgomery, with a troop of horse, was sent in pursuit of him. He overtook the king, and persuaded him to return. The royalists being too weak to support him, Charles was the more easily induced to comply. This incident procured him afterwards better treatment and more authority, the Covenanters being afraid of driving him by their rigours to some desperate resolution. Argyle renewed his courtship to the king, and the king, with equal dissimulation, pretended to repose great confidence in Argyle. He even went so far as to drop hints of his intention to marry that nobleman's daughter, but he had to do with a man too wise to be seduced by such gross artifices. As soon as the season would permit, the Scottish army was assembled under Hamilton and Leslie, and the king was allowed to join the camp. The forces of the western counties, notwithstanding the imminent danger which threatened their country, were resolute not to unite their cause with that of an army which admitted any engagers or malignants among them, and they kept in a body apart under Kerr. They called themselves the Protesters, and their frantic clergy declaimed equally against the king and against Cromwell. The other party were denominated Resolutioners, and these distinctions continued long after to divide and agitate the kingdom. Charles encamped at the Torwood, and his generals resolved to conduct themselves by the same cautious maxims which, so long as they were embraced, had been successful during the former campaign. The town of Stirling lay at his back, and the whole north supplied him with provisions. Strong entrenchments defended his front, and it was in vain that Cromwell made every attempt to bring him to an engagement. 
After losing much time, the English general sent Lambert over the Frith into Fife, with an intention of cutting off the provisions of the enemy. Lambert fell upon Holborn and Brown, who commanded a party of the Scots, and put them to rout with great slaughter. Cromwell also passed over with his whole army, and, lying at the back of the king, made it impossible for him to keep his post any longer. Charles, reduced to despair, embraced a resolution worthy of a young prince contending for empire. Having the way open, he resolved immediately to march into England, where he expected that all his friends and all those who were discontented with the present government would flock to his standard. He persuaded the generals to enter into the same views, and, with one consent, the army, to the number of 14,000 men, rose from their camp and advanced by great journeys towards the south. Cromwell was surprised at this movement of the royal army. Wholly intent on offending his enemy, he had exposed his friends to imminent danger, and saw the king with numerous forces marching into England, where his presence, from the general hatred which prevailed against the Parliament, was capable of producing some great revolution. But if this conduct was an oversight in Cromwell, he quickly repaired it by his vigilance and activity. He dispatched letters to the Parliament, exhorting them not to be dismayed at the approach of the Scots. He sent orders everywhere for assembling forces to oppose the king. He ordered Lambert with a body of cavalry to hang upon the rear of the royal army and infest their march. And he himself, leaving Monk with 7,000 men to complete the reduction of Scotland, followed the king with all the expedition possible. Charles found himself disappointed in his expectations of increasing his army. The Scots, terrified at the prospect of so hazardous an enterprise, fell off in great numbers. The English Presbyterians, having no warning given them of the king's approach, were not prepared to join him. To the Royalists, this measure was equally unexpected, and they were further deterred from joining the Scottish army by the orders which the Committee of Ministers had issued not to admit any, even in this desperate extremity, who would not subscribe the Covenant. The Earl of Derby, leaving the Isle of Man where he had hitherto maintained his independence, was employed in levying the forces in Cheshire and Lancashire, but was soon suppressed by a party of the parliamentary army. And the king, when he arrived at Worcester, found that his forces, extremely harassed by a hasty and fatiguing march, were not more numerous than when he had rose from his camp in the Torwood. Such is the influence of established government, that the Commonwealth, though founded in usurpation the most unjust and unpopular, had authority sufficient to raise everywhere the militia of the counties, and these, united with the regular forces, bent all their efforts against the king. With an army of about 30,000 men, Cromwell fell upon Worcester, and attacking it on all sides, and meeting with little resistance, except from Duke Hamilton and General Middleton, broke in upon the disordered royalists. The streets of the city were strewed with dead. Hamilton, a nobleman of bravery and honour, was mortally wounded. Massey, wounded and taken prisoner, the king himself, having given many proofs of personal valour, was obliged to fly. The whole Scottish army was either killed or taken prisoner. The country people, inflamed with national antipathy, put to death the few that escaped from the field of battle. The king left Worcester at six o'clock in the afternoon, and, without halting, travelled about twenty-six miles, in company with fifty or sixty of his friends. To provide for his safety, he thought it best to separate himself from his companions, and he left them without communicating his intentions to any of them. By the Earl of Derby's directions, he went to Boscobel, a lone house in the borders of Staffordshire, inhabited by one Penderell, a farmer. To this man, Charles entrusted himself. 
the man had dignity of sentiments much above his condition, and though death was denounced against all those who concealed the king, and a great reward promised to any one who should betray him, he professed and maintained unshaken fidelity. He took the assistance of his four brothers, equally honourable with himself, and having clothed the king in a garb like their own, they led him into the neighbouring wood, put a bill in his hand, and pretended to employ themselves in cutting faggots. Some nights he lay upon the straw in the house, and fed on such homely fare as it afforded. For a better concealment, he mounted upon an oak, where he sheltered himself among the leaves and branches for twenty-four hours. He saw several soldiers pass by. All of them were intent in search of the king, and some expressed in his hearing their earnest wishes of seizing him. This tree was afterwards denominated the Royal Oak, and for many years was regarded by the neighbourhood with great veneration. Charles was in the middle of the kingdom, and could neither stay in his retreat, nor stir a step from it without the most imminent danger. Fears, hopes, and party zeal interested multitudes to discover him, and even the smallest indiscretion of his friends might prove fatal. Having joined Lord Wilmot, who was skulking in the neighbourhood, they agreed to put themselves into the hands of Colonel Lane, a zealous royalist, who lived at Bentley not many miles distant. The king's feet were so hurt by walking about in heavy boots or countrymen's shoes, which did not fit him, that he was obliged to mount on horseback, and he travelled in this situation to Bentley, attended by the Penderels, who had been so faithful to him. Lane formed a scheme for his journey to Bristol, where, it was hoped, he would find a ship in which he might transport himself. He had a near kinswoman, Mrs. Norton, who lived within three miles of that city, and was, with child, very near the time of her delivery. He obtained a pass, for during those times of confusion this precaution was requisite, for his sister, Jane Lane, and a servant, to travel towards Bristol under the pretence of visiting and attending her relation. The king rode before the lady, and personated the servant. When they arrived at Norton's, Mrs. Lane pretended that she had brought along as her servant a poor lad, a neighbouring farmer's son who was ill of an ague, and she begged a private room for him where he might be quiet. Although Charles kept himself retired in this chamber, the butler, one Pope, soon knew him. The king was alarmed, but made the butler promise that he would keep the secret from every mortal, even from his master, and he was faithful to his engagement. No ship, it was found, would for a month set sail from Bristol, either for France or Spain, and the king was obliged to go elsewhere for a passage. He entrusted himself to Colonel Wyndham of Dorsetshire, an affectionate partisan of the royal family. The natural effect of the long civil wars, and of the furious rage to which all men were wrought up by their different factions, was that everyone's inclinations and affections were thoroughly known, and even the courage and fidelity of most men, by the variety of incidents, had been put to trial. The royalists, too, had many of them been obliged to make concealments in their houses for themselves, their friends, almost valuable effects, and the art of eluding the enemy had been frequently practised. All these circumstances proved favourable to the king in the present exigency. As he often passed through the hands of Catholics, the priest's hole, as they called it, the place where they were obliged to conceal their persecuted priests, was sometimes employed for sheltering their distressed sovereign. Wyndham, before he received the king, asked leave to entrust the important secret to his mother, his wife, and four servants on whose fidelity he could rely. Of all these, no one proved wanting in either honour or discretion. The venerable old matron, on the reception of her royal guest, expressed the utmost joy that, 
Having lost without regret three sons and one grandchild in the defence of his father, she was now reserved in her declining years to be instrumental in the preservation of himself. Wyndham told the king that Sir Thomas, his father, in the year 1636, a few days before his death, called to him his five sons. My children, said he, we have hitherto seen serene and quiet times under our three last sovereigns, but I must now warn you to prepare for clouds and storms. Factions arise on every side and threaten the tranquillity of your native country. But whatever happen, do you faithfully honour and obey your prince and adhere to the crown. I charge you never to forsake the crown though it should hang upon a bush. These last words, added Wyndham, made such impressions on all our breasts that the many afflictions of those sad times could never efface their indelible characters. From innumerable instances, it appears how deep-rooted in the minds of the English gentry of that age was the principle of loyalty to their sovereign, that noble and generous principle, inferior only in excellence to the more enlarged and more enlightened affection towards a legal constitution. But during those times of military usurpation, these passions were the same. End of section 51, chapter 60, part 4. Recording by Lucas Bolding.